Alright, we're holding here in Prikeavos, at the end of Mishnah 2, Mishnah Beis. It says, If you are dealing with the, with the uh, public people, with the, with the uh, community, let's say, so you have to do it with Shem make sure that you're doing it for God's sake. And it says, in the Mishnah, says, their, this, the merit of their forefathers will help you. It's a custom of this lad. Your righteousness will remain forever. And then it ends up, and you, as for you, Hashem says, I'm going to bestow great reward upon you as if you did it on your own. So Marquette's solution says that this is basically a warning for us to choose worthy leaders. Right? That are people, that are people that are serving, that are, that are serving you and, and the Tzibar, the community, for good reasons. Right? If they are not doing it for good reasons, they're doing it for you know, conceit or whatever, so then if they themselves are filled with such garbage, how are they going to help you? <laughs> Obviously, if they want to help you become better, they have to be amazing themselves. Um, this is a very big issue, obviously, of choosing good leaders. And Chazal speak very, very harshly against such uh, false leaders, so to speak. Nachman speaks about it a lot also. Um, so if that's the case, then why would anyone want to be a leader? You know, like Anyone that's being a leader in any way, if he's not doing it pure, he's not doing it for this all sorts of bad things could happen, so why would anyone want to get involved? Stay uh, incognito. So the Divrei Yitziv, he has an interesting answer by reading this Mishnah with, uh, you know, a little twist. He says, a really person should serve the community, he should be a Rebbe, for the purest of purest intentions. But he says, then if after having all his efforts to doing that, to trying to do that, Meaning he wants to be a leader that's totally pure, but he's still human and he ends up recognizing that he has those human things. As long as he's trying with all his might to be a pure leader, so now Kodesh Baruch considers him, considers him as if he's doing it for the right reasons. Right? Rabbi Tchaikovsky, um, he gives the Ali Shurvadim that I go to, he always says, he says if we, if we would wait for each rabbi that comes out in the world to be pure, with the purest of intentions, so that would be the best idea, the best ideal. But we wouldn't have any rabbi, rabbi in. <laughs> every, every single person in this world is human and has human you know, faults, and we need rabbis and we need people to teach. If that's the case, a person should try as much as he could to be um, better. If he's trying with all his might to be holy in his leading of the community, so HaKadosh Baruch considers it already that he's, that he's on that level. Rav Chaim Velazhen, Ruach HaChaim, his peers on Perkei he says, this is actually guidance for us how to be a good leader. He says, those that are working with people, meaning, you are mailing, um, he says, im He says, with the tzibur, right? That he's working together with the people, right? Sometimes a person is a leader, he says, okay, this is what's going to be. He tells everyone how it's going to be and what he, what he wants them to do, and that, that's the leadership that he's doing, right? Like you see all the uh, dictators and the and the insane people of like that, you know, that guy in North Korea that has like rules, I guess, bow down to his picture every morning and say he's the god of all, you know, like insane people even in this day. So you think like, wow, what a powerful leader. No one, you know, disobeys him. He's obviously out of his mind, but he's also, he's not a leader. He's just ruling over people. But here the mission is saying, if you want to be a leader, you're working together with people together to try to be better. Um, a true leader is someone that does that. He understands the needs of other people, and he puts themselves right. Like we speak about Moshe Feinstein, he always used to uh, 
he always used to put himself in the shoes of other people and even if he himself was holding on a very, very high level, he would understand the working class people and he would be able to relate to them and give them advice and, and give them halakha based on what, how they're supposed to um, be. That's a true leader, someone that could do that. Um, another way to keep one's intentions pure is also to, to just, if you really want to do that, to stay out of the limelight, to serve Hashem privately. Um, the Yate of, of Leib, one of the... Uh, predecessors of the Satmar Rebbe, he says that this is not always possible, right? Because a leader of people in Klal has to sometimes get up in front of people and give a speech and daven in front of people, right? The Rebbe's used to sometimes daven in front of people. Therefore, our mission, he says, is giving extra warning here. He says that someone who is a male meaning that he's together with the tzibur, he has to be in the limelight a bit. So he has to be especially careful that it should be the shem shemayim. Right? And he says, someone that does that, the Mishnah ends up, he'll have tremendous zchus avaisim siyasim, that his own um, forefathers will help him, that he should be able to do that properly. Um, the Sakharov himself, he finds an allusion to this from the Pasuk in um, Torah and Vayikra. It says, You should be holy. So the Ramban explains the famous thing, what does it mean, Kadoshim to you, that you should be separated from, you know, uh, lion chops. You know, you shouldn't uh, run after all the things that the Torah says. You can eat it, but don't be so, um, you know, drawn after such things. And the Dibri Yoel, Samarev, explains it like this. He says, it's, it started off, it says, speak to the whole congregation of Bnei Israel. He says, even when you're speaking in front of the whole congregation of Bnei Israel, Kadoshim to you. To make sure that your mind is separated from them, and your mind is truthfully in the place where it has to be, by Akadosh Baruch right? And if you do that, then you're going to be all right. Um, it's funny, once, once someone asked uh, Rabbi Tchaikovsky also, he asked him, he said that he came into shul, this happens pretty often in Eretz uh, or anywhere where there's a shul and it's a base medrash, and, you know, it's vague as to what it is, it's both, it's everything. So he came in, and they were starting to daven, and there are two guys sitting and learning there. So they continued learning, loudly. <laughs> Going back and forth. And you guys, you know, they're davening, it's a scheduled minion, you know. So eventually someone went over to them and said, like, you know, you're disturbing the tefillah. We were here first. We were sitting and learning. You guys came and davening, you know. Maybe it wasn't 100% scheduled. Maybe it was, I don't know. Exactly. So he said, like, how would I post that? They're right, you know. They were learning there. They were learning. They were learning there first, and they're learning there now. Maybe we shouldn't bother them. They should continue learning. He goes, "They're not learning." He goes, "No, they were learning." He's like, "No, they're not. They're just speaking out loud, very loudly." He says, "Obviously, if they're sitting there thinking about, you know, that everyone's looking at them and hearing them, they're not really learning. They're just focused on bothering you, right?" Now. He says, "Once your mind is focused on a different thing, it can't be focused on what you're doing there." So, to the real saying that a person that's in front of a whole crowd of people, he has to be very careful that he should make sure that. Even if he's in front of a lot of people, he's really alone. Mashalib Sasa puts it like this. He says, even when you're in front of crowds, you should be like an Isbaidus, like as if you're alone. Rav Nachman, he used to say that he could be in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and just sitting there and everyone's like looking at him and, you know, rapt attention. He would just be sitting there alone with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, screaming and crying out to Hashem in his mind. As if no one was there. As if he's like utterly alone. Um, the flip side of this which is something that we have to be very careful, is something that, uh, uh, antidote that Reb Nachman says, which hopefully, you know, hopefully was uh, only a mushal, not a real story, hopefully. But he says there was, you know, this holy Rebbe that would uh, daven in his, you know, Rebbe room, 
every day by himself, private, for many hours. And he would dock him with tremendous fire and passion. He would scream and shout at tefillah and jump and do all sorts of wild motions and everything. And every day he would hear at the door his chastinim, like trying to get there, trying to listen, trying to maybe look through the keyhole. And they were, he would hear a chastinim standing at the door and he would work into a bigger fur. Oh, he would scream more and more. Finally, after nine years of this, he opened the door one day and it was cat. That was just scratching and flipping against the door. And he realized for nine years he was talking to a cat. So, Ramachim basically said that even if you're in your own, your own world, you're in his bodhidus in the forest and you're alone, you can still be imagining, you know, some guy is probably on the other side of the forest looking at me right now and thinking I'm such a static. No matter where you are, you could be in a, you know, in a chamber by yourself and you're saying, no, maybe there's some cameras, some microphones, someone. Wherever you are, you can always have these things. Therefore, if you're alone or if you're in front of people, no matter what, you have to make sure that to remember that in the end of the end of the day, we're all really utterly alone with Hashem, and therefore to do things for Him. As it's Hashem, we deserve to do, you know, do things for Hashem. That's moving straight on to Mishnah three, Parak Beis Mishnah Gimel. It says like this: Have a zehir in Be cautious with the government. They only befriend the person for their own needs. They look like they're so loving and they're friends. Only when it's good for them. And then at the trying hour, when a person really needs help, all of a sudden they're gone, nowhere to be seen. So the Bhattarura says the Mishnah is obviously is, is speaking actually about a continuation from the words that we were just speaking about now. The Mishnah was just speaking about people that are working with the uh, with the community, people that are leaders. So he says, such people that are leaders of the community, that are activists, you know, eventually they have to end up meeting with a senator and meeting with this and meeting with that. So they have to be especially keen to remember this with the next words of the Pirkei Elvis, which is, be careful that the government, as much as they're helping you in this, they're only out for their own good. They're not necessarily out for you. Therefore, you have to be very conscious of this. Svastemis um, even says that the mission starts off just shooting off words, norm, the norm of the Mishnah is either to, in Pekiyavis, is either to start off with a Rebbe, or something like Hua Yahoimer. Here it just says straight up the next Mishnah, which is showing us very much that it's a continuation of the last Mishnah, at least conceptually. In the Kutim Aram, Nachman says that the, uh, the Goyesha leaders are called Russian, not Russian, Russian, poor. They're poor. So the question is that, you know, it doesn't seem like the uh, Sultan of Brunei is very poor. He has a, uh, you know, 777 that's worth uh, $89 million that has, you know, a throne in it. So I wouldn't call that poor. So how is it understood that the Jew, that the Goyish leaders are poor? So he explained that Yiddish Gelt, Jewish money, actually shines with, with a Kedusha, an inner light inside of it that illuminates inside the money. And when a guy sees that money... He gets, he says, whoa, that money is so beautiful, amazing, right? He wants it. And so he goes through everything that he can go through to try to get that money. He, you know, taxes them or steals it or whatever he does to get that Jewish money. The second he gets the Jewish money, what happens? Godliness floats away. And he's left with money. He's like, I have money. Where's that godliness? Where's that, that's like shine that was coming from the money? It's gone. So he says, Oh, there it is, by the Jew. So he goes and grabs more Jewish money, more Jewish money. And therefore, someone like that is obviously always poor, because he never actually fulfills his desire. Uh, Ani is, um, 
It's from a lashon of uh, the other lashon of Ani is uh, Evyon. Evyon is from a lashon of Te'ev to, to always desire. His desires are never filled in Ani. Now, he can be very, 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 very wealthy but be an Ani because his desires are never fulfilled. He's never actually happy. You have a poor guy that's sitting there. Right? The story of the Chacham Natan. We always speak about the sophisticated and the simple. And he's always happy because he has what he wants. He has everything that he needs. So, so you're, you're saying like the that when you see something that you want, you're, you're actually desiring the godliness in it, even though you see it as desiring the physical object. Yeah. So no matter what you acquire, you're, you're not acquiring the thing you're actually desiring. You think you're acquiring what you were desiring, but really you're just acquiring the shell of what you were desiring, and actual Hashem is staying out of it. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's, what, that's what happens with the guy. That's what happens with him. But I'll tell you... So when you come to your possession, it's no longer your possession, it's not going to go where it has a spark. Right. The spark floats away for some reason. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't want to have an example, anything. nowadays is, a few years ago, when uh, a flower became better, uh, a, a, a law that the Israeli government, Israeli banks have to uh, tell the United States government what each American citizen in Israel is having, is earning, having a bank account and so on, so whatever you can tell them, so they can try to tax uh, those who are here. Ah, yeah. And if you're caught not, uh, if you're caught hiding money, probably. They're going to make a lot of trouble through the Israeli government. Exactly. The whole system for it. And why do they, you know, what do they need that for? The United government, a budget of $15 trillion, and it's like a billion, $3 billion here they care about, you know. It's Jewish money. Actually, what Obi was saying was, what actually reminded me, of a vart from Rav Nassim, which is very, very pertinent into that, into that thing. Rav Nassim says like this in the Kutah he says, from the famous sugya in Bab Metziah that kids learn in the beginning of learning, he says, Yish shalemi das lashmi yish, right? The Maklikis. What? Bayan Rava. exactly. Yal kagah. So you got, um, you got Yish shalemi das, meaning a guy's walking down the street and he has his chasm watch, he took it off to go to the mikvah, it's in his pocket, and it falls out of his pocket, and he keeps walking, and he's going, and he's going. He doesn't notice it. He's davening, and he's learning, and that. So that's Yish Shalimidas. It's gone from his possession. He doesn't know about it. Is it considered gone, or is it considered still his? So the Gemara, the Sugya Paskins, it's still his. It's not, he didn't give up on it. He, he still wants it. So if Nassim asks like this, he says, I don't understand. It's not in his pocket. It's not in his. It's on the street. How could it possibly still be his? So he explains which a lot of the Mepharshim, the Rishon, already explained, that there's two levels of ownership every person has on an object. One level of ownership is that it's in my Rishon, either in my house, in my field, or in my pocket, or in my hand. Another level of ownership is Chefetz. Chefetz, in all these studios, it's called a Chefetz, an object. What does Chefetz also mean? It's a desire. So when a person desires to get something, to have something, it's a connection in his heart to that thing. He connects it to Nasa Vinishna. Every single person has a Nasa and a Nishna on, on, his, on his objects. Nasa is that he physically owns it. Asiya. Nishma is more of a spiritual thing that he desires for it. So he says, even though this guy lost his watch, it dropped out of his pocket, so his Nasa is gone, He's not, he does not physically own it anymore, but his desire is still on it. He hasn't given up his desire for it. So that desire, that Chifetz, that Nishma, is still connecting him to the object, and therefore, it's not considered, it's not considered lost. That's what Rav Nassim explains. So when I thought about this, I realized it's a, an incredible lesson for 
for, for, for what we were speaking about just now, is that when the guy is walking down the street and he lost his watch, did he care? He didn't care at all. Right? Ten minutes ago, before he lost it, he was wearing his watch. He has his watch on. It's his watch. It's great, great. He didn't think about it, nothing. Then when he lost it, and all of a sudden someone tells him, where's your watch? He goes, oh my gosh, my chasen watch. Where is it? He starts, starts pounding, and then if he doesn't find it that day or two days, he starts to think, oh, my watch, my watch, my watch. Wait a minute. A couple of days ago, you were wearing it for three years. You never think about it. You never thought about it. What happened that all of a sudden you're thinking about it? Why? Because what you're saying is, a person has a nasa and a nishma on every single thing that he owns. He has a physical ownership and a, and, a, and a desire for it. What happens is, once we have physical possession of anything, the nishma, the desire for it, becomes overwhelmed by the just the physical aspect of owning it. And therefore we just kind of have, I own it. I don't desire it for it, any, for it anymore. I have it. So that nishma gets like kind of floats away. And the nashna, we have it. Great. We own it. But the second you take away that nasa, all of a sudden the nishma comes shooting up and it says like, wait a minute, wow, I have my watch, where is it? And it's a, it's a lesson for everything is that, you know, whatever we have, Rav Arash is always speaking about todat, 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 you know, to thank a Kaddish Baruch for everything, is one of the ways to do that is to envision, right? And on a fast day, you know, a couple of days ago was a fast day, you're like sitting there at three in the afternoon, you're like, wow, I didn't appreciate lunch yesterday, you know? Now, if I would be able to eat lunch, I would appreciate lunch. You're like, what do you mean? You have lunch every day. You mumble benching. No. Because when you take something away, so too, if a person would recognize that, they'd say, you know, if I didn't have my watch right now, what would I feel about my watch? All of a sudden, he's like, I would feel tremendous love and, and desire for it. With every single thing that he has, he says, wow, I really love these things. I really appreciate these things. So anyways, that's a, a lesson for, for what we were saying, that when the, when the Jewish money gets taken away, all of a sudden, all the spirituality, also when, when it happens by a Jew, by his own stuff, you could lose that uh, that chiyus of it. And to, to do that, you have to constantly work on it to, to try to kind of get into the panemius, the, the insides of what you really have, and it's a gift from Hashem, and, and enjoy it, and appreciate that. It's like that with spirituality, too. Yeah. When you have certain mitzvahs that you do, you don't appreciate it. So one day you woke up, you know, later, or whatever it is, you had to run the hospital on Shabbos, and suddenly you're like, well, what I would give to sitting at home right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. We were speaking about that a few weeks ago, and it came out a beautiful thing. I'll repeat it, just because it was a beautiful thing, and you weren't here. Arn wasn't here. So, it says in the Mishnah a few weeks ago... Yeah. So, you could review it on the uh, sheer number 634 in the catalog. No. Um, so, it says in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah 2 in, in, in Parag Base. It says, have a zihirin the mitzvah halakavahamura shinata yidmatan special mitzvah. Be very careful with the major mitzvahs and the minor mitzvahs, because you don't really know what's the schar for each mitzvah. So the um, the question is, Shainatiadmatan you don't know the schar, so how do you know which ones are big, which ones are small? If you don't know the schar, how are we to gauge? We don't have any gauge in the Torah that says this is the big mitzvah, this is the small mitzvah. So what is Mishnah saying? So the Rambam said, we said over there that the big ones are expensive ones and the small ones are inexpensive ones, cheap ones. So my wife asked right away, what is that? That means that like mitzvahs that are cheap are nothing. There's huge mitzvahs that don't cost, don't cost anything. So the answer is that that's exactly what the Mishnah is saying. Don't think that the cheap ones are nothing and the expensive ones are, are something. They're all holy. They're all very important. But Oris Elin says, no, there's a way you could tell. Because Mishnah in Pekila says, Lufum Tzara Agra according to the tsar that a person has, is his tsar, right? According to the, the tsar. So he says, 
if something's very hard on a person, a mitzvah is very hard, so then he gets a tremendous schar. So that's a big mitzvah. If something's very easy, get less schar. That's a lesser mitzvah. But what do we say? We said that if that's the case, you could have two guys that are putting on tefillin, and it's a totally different mitzvah. One guy is just becoming religious. It's like a pain in the neck. He doesn't want to do it. He puts it on his arms. Huge mitzvah. Another guy puts it on every morning. Wakes up, barely opens his eyes, slaps on his tefillin, says, Shana Yisrael, and goes by. That's a small mitzvah. But the truth of the matter is, this is what you were just saying, is that if you look at it deeper, it's not true. Why? Because for that guy that's putting on tefillin, that's really difficult. So putting on tefillin is a huge mitzvah. For the other guy, where is his huge mitzvah? To get chiyas. To get invigorated from every day. Hashem, thank you for the mitzvah of tefillin. In order to get to there, how is he going to get there? He has to break himself and think about the mitzvah and, and daven on the mitzvah and, and, and really work on it. That is a hard thing. And the more regulus, the more rote and habitual the mitzvah becomes, the harder it is to get to that. And therefore you have to work harder and therefore it's a bigger minute. Bigger you, see, you still have a Russell, even if you put on Zbillin for like 10 years, you know, you know you see the down you stole the Russell because the second you're flying, you make sure to put your Zbillin in your bag with you and when your Zbillin gets lost and you don't have it for a day, suddenly, for sure. suddenly you really want to put on someone else's Zbillin and the strap's, you know, a little bit big and it's sliding around your head and suddenly you're like, you want your Zbillin back, you know? Yeah. So like you see you still have it deep down, it's just covered by the fact you do it every day but that one day where you didn't have your feeling that right. day, you were, right before Shia, you're still going crazy, what am I going to do? Where are you going to get it from? Yeah. yeah. And the, the, to finish off that thought there, is that the Baal Shem said on there, we said this, but uh, something happened afterwards, I'll share it hopefully, that the Baal Shem Tov said, have a he says, the hearing, have a hearing, be careful, is also promotion of Zohar, from shine. He says, you should be careful with the small ones and the big ones, because why? Because each of them are Zohar, each of them shine. Every mitzvah that he does shines, and according to the Oris Elim, we just said that he says that the hard ones are the ones that are big, and the easier ones are small. But Hashem is saying that we think hard mitzvahs are the ones that are that are big, the easy mitzvahs that are like shnei mikvechetargum, you know. It's not so easy. Right. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> no, but if you go to a, a person that's, uh, I'll give you a different example. I got shoelaces. That's what everyone says. Right, left, left, right. Okay, that's, that's an easy one. Like I'll give you an example that that highlights the contrast of it. You got psuke de zimra, not psuke de zimra. Chazaras de shots, right? The, the, the chazan is repeating the uh, the shmona esrei. So you got a guy. He's sitting there. He's saying, "What's a hard bit? So I'm in the middle of the rush and chav gimel and darim. It's there. That's just." hard. That means it's a big mitzvah. He opens up the rush and he starts going through. You know what Rav Moshe Feinstein used to do, used to do in Chazar uh, Sashat? He used to sit with the sitter open and point to the words that the Chazan was saying. That's so easy. It's so like small. No, because that's space out time. That's true. But it's so easy. It's just looking and listening to the words. Yes, because have is here in the Baal that says that the small mitzvahs and the big mitzvahs doesn't either, it matter if it's hard or if it's easy. It shines. So this, two weeks ago, I went Shabbos, I was walking down this little nature path with my kids, and there was these people, Jewish people, three generations, being Michal Shabbos. The grandfather was sitting there taking pictures with his camera, and the kids and the mother was, like, not dressed, you know. And I was walking towards them, and I was like, should I turn back? I was like, you know what? And then you're always not sure, should you say Shabbat Shalom? Not. I said, let me do it, you know, if they, if they get insulted, that's their issue. I smiled and I said, Shabbat Shalom. The mother got so excited. She said, Oh, Chiyat, her little seven-year-old son. Tagit Shabbat Shalom. 
So he's like, Shabbat Shalom. I was like, wow. And then I passed the grandfather. You know, he like looked up from his camera. And he, I was like, Shabbat Shalom. He's like, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. And he goes by there. And I was like, what happened here? You know, like it breaks you. You know, like Eden are so lost. Generations just not keeping Shabbos. And then I reminded, it reminded me myself of something I read last week. It was a story that Riegler, um, Sarah Riegler wrote. She said that one of her books mentioned the word secular Jews. And uh, Rabbi Machlis, who is a holy, holy yid here in Yerushalayim, he, 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 he met her or something and he said, he said, there's something very offensive about your book. Please change it. He couldn't even get his, his, his mouth to say the word secular Jews. He said, it's on page 43, the second paragraph. She opened it up. She was like, secular Jews? He's like, please, it hurts me. It hurts me. A, a Jew is not like that. A Jew is a Jew. If they're secular, that's a different story. It has nothing to do with their Jewishness. They're Jewish. He hurt him so much. So she said that that week she was going to the Kotel and someone told her once, Halacha, that if you say Shabbat Shalom on Shabbos morning to a secular Jew and they say Shabbat Shalom back, according to certain, certain shitas, they're Yotze Kiddush by saying Shabbat Shalom. So it's, she always is in the practice of saying Shabbat Shalom to people. So here she was, she was going back and she sees these two Jewish ladies writing a kavitl, writing a little note to Hashem to give him to the Kotel. So she was like, what should I do? Tell them Shabbat Shalom. Should I tell them it's Shabbos? I thought, maybe they don't know. So she built up her card. She said, Shabbat Shalom. But do you know that, like, you know, Shabbat, you're not allowed to write on Shabbat. So the lady just looked at her and she goes, I'm not religious. I don't keep Shabbat. Like, why are you telling me that, you know? So she was about to, like, just, like, wither away and, you know, slide away. And then she said to herself, she said, what do you mean you're not religious? And I'm religious? She said, you're not religious and I'm religious? She said, do I keep every single thing in the Torah 100%? You know what it says in the Torah? Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Sometimes I get angry at my neighbor. Do I keep everything? It says, you know, uh, you know, I hold the grudge. Do I hold grudges? Yes, I do. She says, what is a Jew? A Jew is a Jew no matter what. And he's trying to come close to Hashem. You're also a Jew. And you're also trying to come close to Hashem. And she said, their mouths would drop. They couldn't believe the words that they were hearing. What? Like, and they didn't know what to say. And so she like hopped the moment and she said, Listen, if you want to be a little better, take one thing upon yourself, teeny. Don't ride on Shabbat. Drive on Shabbat. Go to the beach on Shabbat. Do everything. Don't ride. Don't, don't ride on Shabbat. Take it upon yourself. And they were just like, Shabbat Shalom. So here I was walking on this path, and I just heard that story. And I was like, here I was, and I said Shabbat Shalom to these people. These are people that are Jewish, and according to some sheets, they were just Yotze Kiddush, would think Shabbat Shalom. So I was like, wow, do you realize that that's a mitzvah, and the Baal Shanta says that every mitzvah, doesn't matter what do you mean that's a mitzvah, saying Shabbat Shalom, what's the big deal? Yeah, what's the big deal is that every Jewish neshama that says or does anything holy, shines into their neshama. It shines so brightly that it can shine more and more and more into their neshama until they come back with tshuva. That's what Nachman says, Zamar you should always look at the Nekudah stuff as the good points because that can bring a person back with tshuva. And that week I was looking at a pomegranate, and right when I was, when I was thinking about that, it says, even the sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Now, I thought to myself, why a pomegranate? Why not an 613 mitzvahs? There's 613 seeds. There are seeds. Very good. But what's a seed? Why wouldn't we say an apple? An apple is so juicy. A fruit is there to have juice and good taste, not to have seeds. As a matter of fact, when you taste the pomegranate, it's kind of annoying. I wish there were no seeds in the pomegranate. I wish you just took a nice juicy bite out of the pomegranate, like an apple, and it was just all juice. The seeds are annoying. I have to admit, I don't even need the seeds. Some people do. I don't need the seeds. The seeds are potential. Ah, 
that's the point. That's the point is that a few pushes so about mitzvahs kavima is that when you focus on a mitzvah, don't think that you're focusing on a nice juicy thing that they did and Hashem loves it and it's so good. No, it's a seed. When you focus on one mitzvah that another person does or that you do, it shines. It's a light that shines. It's a seed that goes into the neshama and starts to plant more and more and more mitzvahs. And that's why Rav Nachman said that when you look at a good point, another Jew, uh, you can bring them back with you. What is this one thing that that guy's doing? He's a paishay so. It doesn't say, you know, the guys that are being mevatal toira, the mole mitzvahs karima. The paishay so, the guy that's taking a picture on Shabbos, is mole mitzvahs karima. It's filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Each of those mitzvahs, when you say Shabbat Shalom, when you do anything, you focus on that, it starts to illuminate, it starts to plant seeds that they should come back to Tshuva Shlema. And when you do it to yourself, like the Rebbe says, it plants that in yourself, that you could also come back to Tshuva Shlema. Shut up. 3 o'clock, we should be zenched to see these seeds in ourselves and others and see them sprout into beautiful things of Kedusha. Shkoyach, Shabbos.